The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. The House and Senate continued to set the stage this week for the coming session by diving into their first floor debates on the internal rules that will govern them for the next two years. And uh, Colin Young, Matt Murphy, uh, Chris Lasinski join us. Uh, hi, folks. Hey. Hey. What's up, Sam? And uh, Colin and, and Matt, we'll start with you. Uh, although we all took turns down on the House and Senate floors on Wednesday and Thursday as they debated these proposed uh, House, Senate, and joint rules uh, to govern procedure and, and inner workings of the branches. Colin, what were some of the themes that we saw emerge? Yeah, let's start uh, in the House, Sam, uh, where they debated rules on Wednesday, uh, and we saw a number of representatives uh, get up and make the case for uh, new rules or new proposed rules uh, that they said would add transparency to the state government process. Uh, They ultimately came up short uh, in most of their efforts, um, but that was really the the one big theme that carried uh, across the whole debate. The debate began with uh, three proposals from Watertown Representative Jonathan Hecht, Uh, intended to make the operation specifically of House committees uh, more transparent. Uh, One proposal would have required that any bill that was going to be considered during a House session uh, be made available to the representatives and the public at least 72 hours before the House takes the bill up. Uh, Oftentimes the House will take uh, matters up uh, with less notice than that now. Uh, Another amendment would have required House committees to make redrafted bills available to their committee members at least 24 hours before a committee vote and would would have required that committees make all testimony presented to them available to representatives and the public. Uh, And the third failed HECT proposal would have required a waiting period of at least 30 minutes for the House to consider amendments that are filed during the course of an ongoing debate. So transparency was a theme. And and another key word that we kept hearing uh, some of these folks bring up was input opportunity for uh, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, regardless of their station within the House structure, to have the opportunity to provide input on bills, weigh in. And uh, we also heard from some folks, uh, I'm thinking particularly of um, Rep. Uh, Lewis and Rep. Provost's remarks, uh, that their constituents were really getting after them, that they want the opportunity to weigh in on, on proposals. Yeah, well, we heard from a number of uh, representatives, including a, a few of the freshmen and some uh, more veteran lawmakers as well, is that in the last couple of years, their constituents have become uh, more active and more engaged in the process and that they want to be able to follow the legislative process uh, here at the State House. They want to be able to uh, know what bills are going to be coming up for votes. They want to be able to uh, make their voice heard uh, to their lawmakers before a vote is cast. Uh, you mentioned Rep. Denise Provo from Somerville. Uh, she said that she goes to parties in Somerville where people come up to her and ask her what an informal session is. <laughs> uh, Rep. Lewis from uh, Framingham said that he uh, uh, often hears from people who say that they heard on uh, the radio uh, what's going to be voted on in the House before he knows about it. Um, and uh, some of these representatives tied things to the election of Donald Trump in that uh, since uh, the the president was elected, that their constituencies have become more interested uh, and are demanding uh, more access to the legislative process and more of a voice in it. 
And actually, there was uh, a proposed rule, speaking of informal sessions and the public's growing interest in them, uh, there was a proposed rule to televise or broadcast informals on the web. Yeah, and there's um, that's going to move forward as a as a study. Uh, the Senate put that in its proposed joint rules uh, to study the feasibility of having informal sessions broadcast online uh, for both the House and Senate. So we'll we'll see what comes of that. Sure, Matt. We we saw another topic come up that already had been debated at, at some extent last session. And that's the use of non disclosure agreements uh, with House personnel. Uh, what what happened there? Yeah, so like you said, Sam, this was a topic of debate uh, last year during the session after the House uh, embarked on a review of its sexual harassment policies. And uh, this, the House had a good long debate about this, and they uh, came down with a new rule that basically said that they would not use non-disclosure agreements in cases of sexual harassment, except in cases where the victim requested one. So if it was a victim-driven process when the NDA was coming from a survivor of a sexual assault or harassment and felt that it was in their best interest to use one, then they could be used in those circumstances. But with the rules debate coming back around to start this new session, we saw freshman Rep. Patrick Kearney of Situate uh, revive this issue and put forward a proposal, uh, the same one that uh, then-Rep, now-Senator Diane DiZoglio argued for last year to completely ban uh, NDAs in the House. So how much support did he uh, garner? Yeah, well, like, Di- like DiZoglio in the House last year, uh, Kearney couldn't muster much support. Uh, he argued that banning NDAs in the House would be a way to uh, put the House's stamp on this issue and say that no longer would they tolerate silencing victims. But uh, a number of members, uh, including female uh, members of the House and uh, some lawyers, got up and argued against Kearney's amendment, arguing that uh, NDAs can be powerful tools for victims in certain cases, and that banning their use in the House would actually uh, take some measure of control away from the victims. Now, the House came down, uh, the the Senate, I'm sorry, came down uh, on the other side of this issue. Uh, DiZoglio, who uh, I just mentioned, now working across uh, the third floor in the Senate, uh, brought her amendment over there, uh, and her amendment passed the Senate unanimously with absolutely no debate Uh, The Senate was uh, agreed to uh, completely ban NDAs. It's something that uh, Senate President Karen Spilka has said has not been her practice to use. She doesn't intend to use it and has not been the practice under uh, previous Senate presidents to use NDAs. And they codified that uh, in their own rules. So moving forward, the Senate as an institution will not use these under any circumstances. And I spoke to Senator DiZoglio after the vote, and she said that she thought the arguments in the House were valid, that the idea of victim-driven NDAs uh, are, uh, you know, valid uh, and sometimes useful, and she hopes to have this debate uh, as her separate legislation that she's filed moves through the process, but that uh, under her new Senate rule, uh, victims uh, that work in this building would be free to pursue NDAs privately outside of the their, the confines or constructs of their employment here in the legislature. And now, Matt, the uh, issue of NDAs is something that... Uh, it, we could have two different branches uh, of the legislature having two different policies on this because this is something that isn't spoken to in the joint rules that both the House and Senate uh, debated this week. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, technically employees and members in the House and employees and members in the Senate are operating under a a completely different set of rules. And now the joint rules that the House and Senate uh, each debated this week, they each branch debated its own proposed 
version of the joint rules, uh, and the finished products uh, from each branch do not match. So, of course, they'll have to go through the, the conference process to, to get to one set of joint rules. Um, there were a couple big changes that uh, really each branch made really kind of one big change uh, to the, the joint rules or proposed one big change to the joint rules. Uh, over on the Senate side, the Senate took the recommendations of a public records commission that Senator Walter Timothy and Rep. Jen Benson had shared together. Uh, these were the, the Senate-only recommendations. This was a, a special commission that couldn't come to agreement uh, by its initial deadline and then still couldn't come to an agreement on recommendations by a deadline that had been extended by a year. Uh, but the Senate members did make their own recommendations, and those were enshrined uh, as a Timothy amendment into the proposed joint rules. Uh, and, and what Timothy's amendment would do is, is uh, change the required notice period before a committee hearing or executive session of a committee uh, from the current 48 hours to 72 hours before the meeting, uh, require recorded committee votes to be posted on the legislature's website, and require that the committees provide all members with bill texts or summaries before executive sessions. Uh, and these are significant uh, proposals from the Senate because, of course, the joint committees are all controlled by the House. The House has more members on the joint committees, so therefore they, they control the um, operation of the committee more or less. So uh, Timothy's amendment is uh, sort of the Senate trying to uh, 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 get its own view in there and assert a little bit of control in those uh, joint committees. Colin, you, you bring up the uh, joint committee structure, uh, and we heard an interesting comment from Senator Eldridge during rules debate about joint committees. Yeah, it was a passing remark in uh, one of his floor speeches on Thursday, uh, but he suggested that the Senate should seriously consider whether the joint committee structure is still working uh, in Massachusetts. Um, this was an issue that came up about two sessions ago when the House and Senate could not come to agreement on rules. Um, uh, I know Matt covered this uh, certainly far more closely than I did. There was talk of it being a you know, war between the two branches over the rules. Yeah, this is actually the option that Senator Montigny, who was uh, then the, the rules chairman leading the rules debate, he referred to this as the nuclear option, that if they could not reach an agreement with the House uh, to change some of these rules that they felt were slowing the Senate down and preventing them from taking up bills uh, that they wanted to vote on but that were getting bottled up by House chairman and committees, that uh, that they would just blow up essentially the whole committee structure and, and create a separate parallel Senate structure, similar to what you see in Congress. Of course, we never got to uh, uh, the the we never got there, uh, and Senator Montigny took his hand off the button. But, uh, you know, it, it is interesting to hear Senator Eldridge bring this up again as potentially a better way for this legislature to work. We're not quite, uh, <clears throat> we're not quite there yet, but uh, certainly the joint rules do have to uh, go through the conference process, and we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and of course, the other big change on the House side was the vote to scrap what, uh, what we like to call Joint Rule 11, uh, uh, of course named because it was Joint Rule 11. But uh, this was a new, brand new rule last session that was intended and insisted upon by the Senate uh, and intended to speed up and, I, I guess, uh, forestall some of the procrastinating that the legislature has been known for. And it said that no bills could be sent to conference committee to be negotiated after July 17th of the two-year session. So the idea being that these negotiations between the House and Senate would start sooner and they wouldn't necessarily bump so close up to that July 31st deadline. But as um, House Minority Leader Brad Jones pointed out, it did not work. 
Uh, and if you remember back to July, there was an economic development bill that uh, passed one of the branches after the deadline. It couldn't go to conference. They negotiated it uh, just in private without the formal structure of a conference committee. And the, the two branches didn't reach a deal and present uh, a final package to the members until after midnight on the final day of the session. Uh, technically, they weren't even supposed to be in session. And members had no time to see it, read it. Uh, and they voted on it and they passed it. But as Joints pointed out, it, it didn't really work the way it was intended to. And the, vo- the House voted unanimously to scrap this rule. And beyond what we've mentioned here, there was even more interesting debate over a lot of different ideas ideas that folks brought forward. And uh, you can check all that out on our website, statehousenews.com. And we've got some video clips up there, full audio and uh, full notes from both of those sessions. Uh, but turning over to Chris Lasinski. Uh, hey, Chris, um, you, you covered the uh, tipped minimum wage this week for us. And if, uh, if we think back to last summer and, and the so-called grand bargain, uh, that included uh, among its uh, reforms, a multi-year buildup to a a $15 an hour uh, standard minimum wage. Uh, But now we have some lawmakers pushing to increase the minimum wage for tipped workers, uh, which uh, under the already agreed upon raises would end up around $6.75. They want it to be equal to the standard rate. Yeah, that's right, Sam. Uh, So this push comes under uh, an umbrella terminology of one fair wage. There's similar legislation being proposed in 15 other states, as well as a a federal bill that uh, was filed by uh, uh, Congressman Joe Kennedy um, that would set a $15 minimum wage, both for those who receive tips and those who don't receive tips. Um, It would obviously be a big change in Massachusetts so soon after that uh, so-called grand bargain came. And basically what it would do is it would eliminate there being two different rates. So say a a waitress in a restaurant would earn $15 per hour from the restaurant owner or the employer. And any tips that are earned are simply a a bonus that those employees could pocket for themselves afterward. Uh, The goal from these legislators, uh, the bill was filed here in Massachusetts by uh, Senator Patricia Jalen and Representative Tricia Farley-Bouvier. The goal that they've said is they want to to remove the stress that employees face not knowing what tips are going to look like on a given day and return to a system where where tipping and gratuities are really just a bonus. Uh, They use the phrase relationship between a customer and an employee um, a couple times when they spoke about this on a a teleconference this week. Sure. Uh, How how big is the gap between those two wages in Massachusetts? It's actually quite sizable. Uh, You know, as we stand right now, the the minimum standard wage in Massachusetts is $12 an hour. That'll go up to $15 an hour by 2023. And the minimum wage that a tipped worker has to earn is only uh, $4.35. In terms of dollars and cents, that's actually the largest gap among any state in the country right now. Um, It is really worth noting, though, that part of state law is that uh, tipped tipped wage plus tips has to reach the overall minimum wage. So, for example, if it's a really slow day at a restaurant and a, a member of the wait staff only brings in tips that bring their overall wage to $10 an hour, sure. the employer is obligated to pay an extra $2 an hour to make up that difference. And that's calculated at the end of each and every service shift. Um, you know, Advocates here say that it's important to bring the minimum re- 
uh, floor up to reduce that kind of stress and uncertainty for the employees. But this is probably going to face some pretty significant pushback from uh, restaurant associations and business owners who already were uh, uh, not the most happy with the minimum wage increases we saw under the grand bargain. And this would be threefold what that agreement was. Sure. Uh, How has something like this gone in other states? You know, the results are, are actually kind of mixed. In Maine, an example that a couple of small business associations have pointed out to make their point, uh, a 2016 ballot initiative uh, put a system like this in place. It increased both the minimum wage and the minimum wage for tipped workers. But just a year later, uh, there was significant outcry over this, a lot of it coming from workers of the service industries themselves who said that customers had stopped tipping them and that their overall net wages were down. So in June 2017, the Maine legislature passed a law actually cutting the minimum tipped wage to half the normal minimum wage. But that being said, there are seven other states, including California and Alaska, where there's one wage for all workers and tips are simply a a bonus on top. And uh, things seem to be going fairly well there. Uh, There's some some evidence and some research that in those states, poverty rates for workers are lower than they are in uh, in states where there is a different wage for for tipped and untipped employees. So there's a a pretty wide body of evidence that you could use in either direction here. What sort of reception is this idea getting uh, from other members of the legislature? You know, there are only about half a dozen co-sponsors on this bill so far, and and Friday was the the deadline to sign on with that. So it it doesn't seem to have gained a a huge amount of traction in the legislature. And I think part of that comes from the the timing of it. You know, uh, the the grand bargain was so recent that I I think uh, a lot of lawmakers might be hesitant to make such a major change. Again, this would this would more than double the minimum wage for tipped workers. Um, and so I, I think that people are a little bit skeptical and hesitant of this. Uh, I'll be uh, curious to see how much momentum this actually gets going forward in the session. Sure. All right. Hey, thanks, Chris. Yeah. Welcome again. And uh, folks, go Pats. Yeah, big Super Bowl. Do we need to talk about politicians' Super Bowl bets? Uh, you know, I think uh, might as well wrap up with that, Chris. That's a good idea. Uh, which... Which bets did we see come forward today? I want to use this platform to put my take out there into the universe. Uh, uh, Congresswoman Linda Sanchez of California uh, over Twitter announced a bet with uh, our own congresswoman here for the 3rd District, Lori Trahan, that if the Patriots win the Super Bowl, uh, Congresswoman Sanchez will throw an ice cream party for Congresswoman Trahan's staff at the U.S. Capitol, all while wearing a Patriots jersey. I'm sorry, but if you're going to make a food-related sports bet as a politician, you need to bet something related to your local area, not just ice cream that you can buy anywhere. Uh, yeah, California is not the ice cream state or anything like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. But maybe in honor of Tom Brady, it should be avocado ice cream. Oh, geez. Well, I've got one here for you that I just saw this afternoon. Uh, the president of the Boston Fed uh, has made a bet with the president of, uh, let's see, I believe it's actually the San Francisco Fed, California, uh, Federal Reserve there. Uh, but they've made a bet that does involve food and does involve avocado. Um, the, the bet is that if the Patriots win, the San Francisco Fed will serve New England clam chowder. And if the Rams win, the Boston Fed will have to serve avocado toast, which the Boston Fed referred to as a West Coast staple. <laughs> uh, the, the governor uh, came up with his own bet, right, Matt? 
Yeah, so it does appear that uh, new governor Gavin Newsom of California did get back to Charlie Baker, who's at the Super Bowl, by the way, on his way down to Atlanta tomorrow, but uh, got back to him. And they came up with, I'm sorry, uh, with all due respect to both uh, governors, I think is one of the worst bets we've seen in a long time. The governor left his coffee cake uh, cupcakes in Springfield this time, and the two (laughs) governors instead bet that the loser would do some charity work in their home state. So essentially, if the Patriots are to win the Super Bowl, then Governor Newsom would volunteer along with his staff at a California charity of his choice. So the Patriots winning and a Boston charity wouldn't even benefit from that win. So I'm not sure how this works. Plus, that's not even volunteering. If you have to do it because you've lost a bet, that's not volunteering. You're paying off a debt. You're paying a debt. Touche. All right. Thanks, folks. Go Pats. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.